Hey yo, we about to tear it up. Welcome to episode 65 of the Breaking Atoms podcast, where we break things down to the very last compound. My name is Chris Mitchell, aka The Professional Pessimist. And before I get started, I just want to thank everyone that tuned into the last two episodes of the podcast in particular. The feedback has been incredible. On episode 63, we were joined by Dar Adams talking about life in Boston, the local hip hop scene and some of his upcoming creative projects. On episode 64, we were joined by my man Rail to celebrate the 10th anniversary of TSOL by Shad. We're going to keep it live with another special guest today. I am joined by one of the biggest independent hip-hop artists on planet Earth right now. I'm talking multiple projects, international tour dates, merchandise is flying out the door, and his streams are in the six figures. His name is A1. He's one half of hip-hop duo A1 and Phonics, co-founder of Don't Sleep Records. He's an avid hip-hop fan, and he's a very skilled MC. So if you're a boom-bap aficionado and a lover of high-chested hip-hop with a message, check this out. A1, how are you doing, brother? Hey, peace, man. I'm doing great. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing good, man. Like, you know... You know, like how Tajay says uh, at, the, at the beginning of uh, 93 till infinity, it's getting a, bit, a little hectic out there. It's um, definitely hectic outside, but I'm, I'm grateful and I'm blessed to be here. Yes, absolutely. I, I feel absolutely the same way. It's hectic outside, but um, it could be worse. Definitely. But before we kick into this interview, bro, I just feel like from one black man to another, um, we, we know what's happening, not just in, in the States, but in the world at large. I want to check in with you, man. How are you and your family doing? How are you guys bearing up? What are your thoughts about what's going on outside? Um, well, my thoughts are that, well, first of all, we're doing well um, considering everything that's going on. Um, second of all, as you know, um, internationally, people of color have issues with police brutality in various forms, um, especially when it comes to the European colonialism, you know, um, those people, those black people that are living within the, uh, the, the diaspora, um, you know, separated from our indigenous homelands through our ancestors being carted off to various places as chattel, you know, 401 some odd years ago. Um, we undergo a, a great deal of scrutiny when it comes to law enforcement, um, more so than our counterparts. So what's going on outside is nothing new for us. What is new for me is the amount of solidarity and unity that I see that is very encouraging. Um, you know, as angry as I am, I'm also um, cautiously optimistic about the future based on what I see, you know, because I haven't seen anything like this in my life, uh, you know what I mean? And I've been living for some time, but, you know, I haven't seen anything of this magnitude worldwide, all 50 states, even the smallest towns in America have had their own form of protesting. And I've seen massive protests in the major cities, um, cities that I've visited in the past, like London, Berlin, Paris, um, I've seen it. I've seen solidarity all the way from Syria, 
um, and they're in the civil midst of a civil war and displaced themselves. I've seen so many light, so much light that I can't, I can't, um, you know, worry about the darkness because we'll see our way through the end of the tunnel because there's so much light. You know what I mean? Definitely. I woke up yesterday morning. Um, it was it was a contrast from last week. So last Monday, I woke up in a rage. And I literally screamed inside the house just from frustration and anger. But yesterday morning, I woke up and I was just like, I've never felt this way before. Um, it feels like, oh my God, are we actually being heard now? Are we, are we going to have some kind of political and social leverage whereby we can actually affect positive and lasting change? I've never felt that before. So I, I join you in saying, yeah, it's different. Um, but I'm also going to be ca cautiously optimistic. Yes, yes. So I, I feel the same. I feel like, um, you know, we are we are on the brink of change just based off of the things that I see, um, you know, and the rhetoric that I hear and the moves that I see being made. Um, the end goal that I like to see is not um, necessarily only convictions and verdicts that go in the favor of justice. But I like to see legislative reform, um, not only in America, but everywhere to protect people of color, to make people, and all people, to make people um, and police aware that their power is no more because they actually work for the people. I think that, um, you know, in a, in a, in a, again, throughout European colonialism, there has been a use of war tactics on the population, you know, that is systematically built to divide and conquer and to constantly feed an industrial prison complex, you know, new bodies to continue the, the uh, idea and the concept of slavery just in a different construct. You see what I'm saying? Because when, when yeah, when you have, um, you know, racism that is uh, systemic, that that is not necessarily um obvious all of the time but you know you understand that it's biased as a person of color you understand that there's bias um the 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 laws have only been morphed to make it acceptable to the greater population so you know th theoretically in the apartheid state when you live in an apartheid state where you are the minority you know, the powers that be have to make the majority comfortable with that. So in order to make the majority comfortable with that, you vilify it. You use terms like law and order. You know, you use terms that identify those people of color as savage, as, as angry, as hostile, as violent, as aggressive. You know, and that, and that is what makes people, you know, comfortable. Like, well, uh, you shouldn't do this if you don't want to then be in prison. You shouldn't commit crimes. Whoever said that a crime was actually committed in all cases, you understand? Especially when then the punishment is more severe for us than it is for our counterparts for the same exact um, infringement of the law. You know what I mean? So what, what, what I'm saying is, is that when you have that, syst that system of racism that then feeds a, a, a prison industrial complex that then feeds products and manufacturing to corporations for very little or no pay that is slavery because these people have to work against their will, you know? Um, and again, 
I've seen it happen. It's a cycle that constantly goes on. You know, when you think about emancipation, they said, okay, you all are free. But if you don't have a job, if you're loitering, you have to get locked up. And then you go back to the chain gang. You work in the prison. So if you're free with nowhere to go, you're homeless. So you are loitering no matter what. You see how the laws, they do these things to just keep the cycle going regardless, even in the emancipation. And that's called pig laws. You know, that's here. Then you, you fast forward and you go to Jim Crow. Jim Crow that existed in the South in America for many, many years where there was segregation, um, separate bathrooms, separate restaurants. You, you, you could get denied service. You had to ride at the back of the bus. You couldn't vote. You couldn't go to the proper schools. They, our schools were severely underfunded. Then you have the Civil Rights Act. And still, even after that, you had something called redlining that wasn't eradicated until the mid-70s where realtors can say, you can't go and um, we don't have to show you this house in this neighborhood. You have to stay here, which in theory, you know, banks wouldn't give you a loan for certain homes. It just it kept going on and on and on in different facets. And, and you fast forward to the war on drugs in the 80s and then mass incarceration in the 90s. You see how slavery did not just end. It only evolved through the law, through policy, through administration, and that's why it's systemic. And then it all falls on the hand, the police brutality, because these are the dogs that you sicked on us through your legislation, through those crack laws, through the war on drugs, through mass incarceration. And you want to know why officers are having and going out there brutalizing our community. It's because you told them that we were the enemy and you've always done that. You know what I mean? So, 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 um, it's about time that not only the police officers atone for their actions. I feel like government, anyone in administration, anyone in legislation, in the legislative body, they need to also atone for the legislation that they created, that created these systemic problems in all countries that are, again, under the idea of European colonialism, where Africans are living within the diaspora. You know what I'm saying? So you've had a lot of time, or we've all had a lot of time over these last couple of months, because we've been locked down, quarantines, uh, what's the word, social distancing, self-isolation, all that good stuff. I wrote on Twitter this morning, I've learned two things during this lockdown, what I can do without and what I can do for myself. So I'm going to pose those two questions to you. Like, what are the two, what are the things you've learned that you can do without and what you can do for yourself? Well, I've always been a self-starter, a, a motivated person. So the things I could do without are like going out to eat, um, eating out. Um, you know, I haven't gone to a barbershop in many years because I cut my own hair. I cut my kids hair. You know, so the things that people are clamoring to do, I was already doing for myself. So I realized that, you know, being able to fish means a lot because you don't have to rely on establishments and different things to get what you need. It's important to be independent as a man in this world or as a woman, as a human being, because we never know when our systems will fail us. And we, we're witnessing that now. So I hope that people take that 
you know, into consideration and think about more that they could do at home because the more you do for yourself, the better it is for the environment, the better it is for your wallet, and in turn, the better it is for your household. So, you know, those type of frivolous things I can do without. What I can do for myself is um, more handiwork, uh, do-it-yourself type things, um, going around the house, fixing things that need to be done, um, you know, maintenance on cars, anything that anything that you would normally go out to do that now you have all of this time is just best to learn how to do it yourself. And, um, you know, you become more self-sufficient, streamline your life, and you can have more time to do the things that matter the most, like spend time with your kids and, you know, spend time doing actual living. You know what I mean? Instead of being stuck at these places that you're waiting in line for food or you're waiting an hour or two for a haircut or you're waiting for your car to get repaired, things of that nature, um, they take away from us actually living. So it's, it's time to live. You know what I mean? It's, it's humans. Let's take it back to the beginning. Antoine Wiggins, you are originally from Brooklyn, New York. Um, what was it like for you growing up in terms of like home, school, and family in the birthplace of hip hop? Okay, so um, for me, I grew up in Brooklyn, um, the early part of my life. I was born in Brooklyn Hospital. Um, I lived in um, Brooklyn, um, excuse me, I lived in Fort Greene, um, which is uh, now like a hip area in Brooklyn, uh, but I didn't live in the hip area. I lived in the Ingersoll Houses, which was a housing project, um, you know, a notorious housing project in that area. Um, I grew up right near the water, right near the Brooklyn Bridge, um, close to downtown Manhattan. In fact, it was downtown Brooklyn. Um, so being so close to the city, which we call Manhattan, is the best of both worlds. Um, I grew up in the house uh, with like 10 people. Uh, my parents were extremely young. So I lived with my mom and my dad. He lived with his mom. My parents were, um, when I was born, uh, eight, 18 and 17 respectively. So, um, you know, I grew up in my grandparents' home with them and my aunts and my uncles. I was the oldest grandchild, the first grandchild. So there was a lot of love, you know what I mean? And I learned a lot. Uh, my aunts and uncles aren't that much older than me. Um, you know, my grandparents were in their 40s when I was born. So I had a lot of uh, uh, a youthful and young family. And that is what led me to hip hop. My youthful family, my younger parents um, and the, the camaraderie of that survival of being around so many people in one house growing up. You know what I'm saying? So um, I got to see a lot and experience a lot. I always tell people I was born at the right place at the right time um, because everything that I saw uh, helped define who I am today um, from, you know, taking the train and seeing all of these famous graffiti murals, you know, seeing them in real life, the things that people see in movies, you know, experiencing that, experiencing the culture firsthand from if you're looking at, um, you know, peace to the, uh, to the guard, Jamel Shabazz, if you're looking at his photographs of early hip hop, or if you're looking at Martha Cooper's photos of early hip hop, you know what I'm saying? You you see the dress and the styles. And I got to experience that firsthand through my parents and through my aunts and uncles, um, because that's the way that they dress. And the people in my neighborhood, that's what I saw from the, the suede Pumas to the Stan Smiths to the shell toes, you know, all of that type of stuff. 
I was there directly for it, from leaves with the crease, you know what I mean, to the satin bomber jackets. I was there for that, to gazelle, to gazelle frames, which I wear now. I was there for that. I got to see all of that, to actually being around rappers and, and, and being able to see these people that I see on Video Music Box. Shouts out to Ralph McDaniels. Um, you know, that's a, a video show on public access TV in New York City that broke a lot of the black videos through that MTV wasn't playing at the time. And most people didn't have access to cable, so we watched Video Music Box. But long story short, that experience of being in New York City is what made me who I am today. Hip-hop was so new, and it was exploding. It was like rapid fire. And literally, you could listen to the radio and hear um, DJ Red Alert or Chuck Chillout on the rival station break records. You know what I'm saying? Like, literally, you listen to their radio show, you hear something you never heard before um, because so much music was coming out. And I came of age during the first golden era of hip hop. I came of age in my awakening in 87, 88. You know, so those were like the greatest years in in hip hop to me. And I people ask me, well, why is your tag A1988? Is because in 88, that's when I started rapping. So that's when I was really born again into the culture. So that's what growing up in New York was like for me. You know, it was more positive than negative, in, in my opinion. You took this uh, this New York state of mind, if I could uh, use that term, pun intended, and you moved to Virginia. What prompted that move to Virginia and what were the main differences between life in Brooklyn, New York and Virginia? Well, um, I had family members that came down here earlier in the um, mid-80s and my grandparents wanted to change the pace. Um, my grandfather, you know, he was a, he, you know, a, he was a big time hustler, you know, and he saved up a bunch of money. And instead of, you know, the projects, he wanted to seek a better life for us. So he bought a crib in um, Newport News, Virginia. And, um, you know, he moved us all down here and saved our lives, to be quite honest with you, because New York was beginning to get in its most violent period in history at that time. Um, you know, we were nearing in 89 when we left we were nearing 2000 homicides per year just in the city just in new york city not new york state but the city was nearing 2000 homicides around that time and um the early the late 80s or early 90s became the most brutal years of homicides in new york city due to you know the war on drugs and the crack cocaine epidemic that ravaged through, you know, urban communities nationwide, you know what I'm saying? So um, we, we got to Virginia and found that, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't too different. The scene wasn't as um, thorough and wasn't as um, developed, but it was definitely here. And the only reason it wasn't is because you don't have a lot of um, walkable traffic in New York. I mean, excuse me, in Virginia. So you had to drive around and it wasn't, the city wasn't as walk walkable based off of the infrastructure, you know what I'm saying? Um, so the music was there through radio, through um, DJs, through parties, and through that, you know, but the, um, the, the aesthetic wasn't necessarily here. You know, I moved on a suburban block, you know what I mean, with an actual lawn, and my grandfather had a garden, and, you know, we ha I had my own room, so I went from a project tenement to, you know, this big house, and 
a yard and green grass and you know space so it was it was different in that sense the aesthetic wasn't the same you didn't have that that concrete jungle feel around but that's i didn't miss that you know i enjoyed the freedom of being in virginia and to still have radio be my um you know outlet to the music that i love the most and then we got cable <laughs> you know what i'm saying we were and then it was your own tv raps it was fab five freddy you know um it was rap city with uh the mayor uh chris thomas and joe claire and prince Dejour and big ledge you know what i mean so um it, it it came full circle so i never really missed anything except for the aesthetic of the city and um i still went back and forth a lot due to the fact that my grandmother on my father's side my whole family is still on my father's side is still in new york city so i have reason to go quite frequently so that i never lost the the um aesthetic i always got a chance to um reboot and um pump that energy back into my my bloodstream that the city gives you because the city does give you a certain energy when you're in it you know what i mean you have the you got the brooklyn aesthetic and you also got the virginia aesthetic tell me about your entry point into hip-hop and first picking up a microphone or putting that pen to the paper how did it happen for you and who are some of the mcs that inspired you in the beginning sure so um the first time i wanted to rap was in 1988 i was watching um video music box and um ralph mcdaniels had just broke um the single from big daddy king ain't no half stepping with the video and everything and it was it was moving for me it was like uh it was like the 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 light bulb went off because king had looked a lot like my uncle he wore his hair the same you know he was dressed real suave and he had the moves the dance moves and everything so and he wasn't that old so i was like man this guy is not that much older than my aunt and my uncle you know in fact they know him they knew him and they like oh that's came from you know up the way and i'm like oh wow and i said this is really attainable you know what i'm saying and then my aunt described to me more about some of the people she went to school with like biz and you know how uh dana dane lived um uh, like on the other side of the project and i was like really these people actually live here and they come out of here and seeing it so close to me in new york i said i can do this so on that day that i saw that video i asked my aunt to help me write a rap and we we did we wrote a rap um it was so simple we didn't even write have to write it down on paper but it was like four bars and um do you remember the four bars oh absolutely i have a memory like an elephant so that four bars was like it's the a n t w a n i e you can find me in the book or the dictionary so when you're feeling down or all depressed just look my name up i make you feel your best <laughs> you know <laughs> that's what that's where we came up um with and um ever since then i started writing but um when i actually picked up a microphone was i want to say 1993 um it was a talent show could have been 94 but i think it was 93 because i was still in the um no it was 92 i was in the seventh grade sorry there was a talent show and i had been rapping and all my friends knew that i could rap so a friend of mine um you know anthony deloach little tony said look i want to make a group I want you in it. We're going to enter the talent show. I believe we can win. So I was like, cool. So Tony, you know, he's a really popular guy. Um, and I knew him very well. He got myself, my cousin Eddie, rest in peace. Um, another crazy MC, his name was Sean Parker. And um, my man, Toon, who is uh, 
uh, my boy Dwayne. So uh, Dwayne, myself, Eddie, we practiced. We we had matching outfits, and um, we we did this record called "Who's Taking Over." I forgot the instrumental that we were on, but we literally killed it. I mean, we 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 tore it up. We um, destroyed all of the competition in the talent show. We had the whole school up, and I knew then that oh, okay, this is special. I said, this is real. So the next talent show was probably a year later at Doris Miller, which is a community center in Newport News. And I entered with my cousin, um, Kareem. Rest in peace to my cousin, Remo, as well. And um, we uh, <laughs> we did a, um, a little ditty off of um, J. Rue, the Damages Come Clean. And, um, you know, we rocked. We were little kids, but you know, we were dead serious about what we were doing. And that's when I had my introduction into beginning to perform live. By 94, I was recording, um, you know, some of my esoteric demos, you know, some of the earliest stuff um, with a DJ from my neighborhood, my boy, uh, DJ Big E, uh, rest in peace to him as well. Um, but DJ Big E was an older guy from the neighborhood who happened to have equipment and, um, I would bug him to death. I would knock on his door. I would ask his mother, where is she? And she's like, he's in school. You should be in school too. <laughs> like, you know, or he's at work. And finally, um, by that summer when he had some time off, he listened to me and he started recording me. And um, he became a mentor and a good friend of mine and um, helped me get some of my earlier recordings out there. And um, I worked with him for years um and we became friends up until he we were friends up until the time he passed away so um that was my uh introduction into the scene in virginia rest in peace dj Big E. It's the first time first time i've heard of this gentleman but um one thing that's really hit me just talking to you now you've said a few rest in pieces and it's just put me into a really uh reflective somber place it's like there's so many people in our stories who aren't here to see us now um and i just felt i felt a tinge of sadness so rest, rest in peace to DJ Big E and your cousin, is it Kareem? Is it Remo? Yeah, yeah. My cousin Kareem, my cousin Eddie, all of those people um, were a part of my, um, you know, beginnings as an artist. They were all there. They were all very supportive. And, um, you know, they're just not with us. It, you know, death in my community is, is almost, uh, you know, it's like, I'm, I don't want to say rites of passage, but you become numb to it. It's just something that happens. You know what I mean? Whether it's natural causes or whether it's through violence or, you know, whether it's an unfortunate incident. You know, I've lost so many people that I deal with it, you know, and that melancholy is also what drives me um, musically. You know what I mean? Got you. I got you. Um, when I listen to your music, I think of two sides of a coin. And I think of someone who has seen a lot on a street level, but you can also show the other side of the coin and you don't glorify the bad stuff. Because, you know, with some, some MCs, um, and I'm not going to say any names, it's almost like, you know, everything that's bad and negative, they'll highlight those parts, but they won't tell you about, you know, the, the, the wife and the family they got at home or, you know, how much they enjoy taking to their kids to the park and whatnot. I listen to Summer Madness from you. Um, I listen to reflections and you always show the other side. Is that a deliberate thing? And why is it that you do that? What, why is it that you think, you know what, I'm going to show both sides of this coin. Is it because that's just how you are or is it more of an artistic effort on your part? Um, it's a bit of both. It's who I am. 
um, because we don't start off as menaces. We don't begin our lives as sociopaths or criminals or anything that people would like to say that we are. We begin our life as children and we all have good intentions. I know because I have children. Name a mean baby that you've ever met, you know, um, you know, like just name a, a, a violent baby or an aggressive baby or a baby that's, you know, um, prone to violence or prone to, you know, crim criminality. So I think that we all start off from a good place. Um, sometimes our environment is what takes us away from, um, you know, the path that we would like to be on. Peer pressure, um, uh, you know, socioeconomic status and other things contribute to who we become. But I, I make a deliberate point because I understand, you know, that things happen in, in life and we all fall short of the glory, you know what I mean? But, um, and we're all not perfect individuals. But I think it's important to let people know, especially our counterparts from other communities that don't understand um, street life. They need to know what it's really like, you know what I mean? They need to know that I could sit here and, you know, go for an hour just naming people that were my friends or relatives who were murdered, who died violent deaths. You know what I'm saying? They need to know what prison is like. And they need to know that, you know, um, justice is not always um, given. It's rarely given in that sense. They need to know the conditions of the community and the conditions of the struggle that we're in. They don't need to know only cars, only clothes. They need a, a, a deeper reflection into the process of what that life is like. You know what I mean? Um, so those who glorify it, I have no um, no qualms or no problem with them. But there's a, there has to be um, a, a relative consciousness amongst us all as MCs with the power of having a platform of a microphone to let people understand the ramifications of the actions that you take. See, because this is what created the culture of the lack of loyalty. You know what I'm saying? Biggie said it best, soldiers move in silence. So you telling all these stories of these crimes you committed and what you would do to someone, but you never tell them the, the consequences of such actions, which lead to impressionable youth perpetuating similar actions, not being able to take the consequences. And then they can't be loyal. They can't account for their own actions and deeds. Then you have this telling. You have this crab at the bottom of the pot mentality of, well, I'm locked up. I'm not going down alone. I'm telling on everybody. Now, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that's, the, that's the cycle that you create when you lie, when you only tell a half truth. Because, you know, people have buyer's remorse. They buy into this lifestyle and then they get in front of that judge and um, they change immediately. And then they become that child, that innocent child that doesn't want to be in that situation that's crying out for mom or, you know, needs help or, you know, in that sense, is sensitive enough to shed a tear when the, when the sentence is rendered and handed down. But not, not until you bring down your brothers, you know what I'm saying, along with you, um, you know, because you couldn't deal with those actions and those consequences. So I just like, especially knowing that young people listen to my music, I just like to be honest and let them know like, yo, you could do this shit, but please believe me, 
there will be consequences. You know, you might get your head busted in these streets. You might go to prison, you know, for a very long time. You might lose your freedom or your life, you know, dealing with these things. I'm only telling you this so you can make better decisions because I know that there has to be balance. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So the generation of MCs that I grew up listening to had a lot of balance throughout their music. You know, as um, polarizing as Tupac Shakur was, he had a lot of balance in his music. Even when it was contradictory, there was a lot of balance. Almost like, well, if I'm going to say this shit and I'm going to do hit him up, I also have to do I ain't mad at you. You know what I'm saying? If I'm going to do if I'm gonna do, I get around, I also have to do keep your head up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm with you. Sticking with the, uh, the idea of uh, politics and social commentary and the stuff that you talk about in your music. I saw something on Twitter this week and it said, or the person tweeted, keep politics out of HHT, which is hip hop Twitter. Growing up, and I'm sure you're the same, I read the Source magazine religiously. And one of the things that really drew me to the source was the fact that under the main title, the tagline was the magazine of hip hop, music, culture and politics. What are your thoughts on politics in hip hop and why do you think it's important that we keep the politics and the social commentary in the music? Or maybe you disagree. Maybe you think, you know what, we might need to tone it down at some point. Just what are your thoughts in general about politics and social commentary in, in in the culture? Um, the culture was built off politics and social commentary in the culture. The real culture, um, we can say that it was about peace, love, unity, and having fun and dancing and all of that. But by the time Melly Mel uttered those words, it's like a jungle sometimes that make me wonder how I keep from going under. You know what I'm saying? The message, you know, that was it. You know, what about white lines? You know what I mean? Like about not doing cocaine. You know, that Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Tribe put together. What about those records with tons of social commentary in them? You know, that was that were made before many of the people who would dare utter something like that were born. I would take it even further. The most blatant and glaring example of social commentary in hip hop. I'm going to give you two coasts. Public Enemy and their West Coast counterparts, N.W.A. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's very laughable, and I'm not insulting anyone who made that comment, but this is why the education of the culture needs to be consistent, needs to be thorough, and people need to think about what they say before they say it if they are not well-read. I mean, I said it the other day. Doing the knowledge means to read a book. It does not mean looking at documentaries and shit on YouTube and getting your information third hand. It doesn't mean watching a one minute clip on Instagram and thinking you're an expert on the subject because that music, that not, not the music, but that information is second and third hand. And that's a form of hearsay. So now you're creating logical arguments based off gossip. Read a book, man. You know what I mean? And that will... That will give you the knowledge on our culture. And we, you know, me, where I'm at now, um, my life has been dedicated to this culture. And I feel like in my own right, I'm an oral historian of this culture. It is only right that I articulate all these points every opportunity that I get a chance to. 
because a lot of MCs today, they don't have the same um, candor or they don't have the same insight or they're not able to articulate the things that I'm, I'm, you know, saying right now. But I trust and believe most of them feel that way. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there's always social commentary in hip hop. Even when you listen to trap music in the in the most, um, you know, I, I would say the most um, criticized form or subgenre of hip hop, there's a ton of social commentary deep in the lingo that those guys are talking about that people that people miss because they only hear the catchy hook and the and the driving beat. But, you know, I take it to the UK and when you listen to grind, people want to dance to it. But listening to grind, you hear all of the social commentary if you're actually listening. And um, people have to begin listening and get out of the, the um, microwave sensation of I'm going to listen to 30 seconds of a song. And if I don't like the beat, I'm not going to listen to it anymore. You know what I'm saying? Let's 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 touch on your catalog. Solar Power. I'm going to go on record, bro, and I'm going to say that was one of my favourite albums of last year. Different producers on there, though. There was a variety of producers on there, and it got me thinking. You're part of one of the best duos in hip-hop music. Um, Imperial and myself, we, we use you often as a reference point for what we do. Thank you, man. Thank you. I, I'm honoured to hear that. That's, that's amazing. When we put out one of our early, early records, someone wrote in the comments... Uh, we've got A1 and Phonics, and now we've got Imperial and Kinetic as well. And I was just like, whoa, like, considering you're, you're, you're definitely a duo who we, who we look up to, someone who's kept it real in the field, pun intended, um, and still managed to gain some notoriety and some, some, some love from, from the public. How do you know when it's time to do an A1 project as opposed to a Phonics project and vice versa? Um, well, that's, the, that's about my work habits. So... Um... As I'm recording things with Phonics for our collaborative efforts as a group, I'm also tinkering and working on my own solo projects that are more personal. So if you listen to a Matt Black Soul or Solar Power, those albums are very uh, personal um, and at times um, self-reflecting and at times, you know, just about me as opposed to the greater, you know, um, population. So those are like inward looking type of albums and records that I work on in the process of working on everything else. So those albums actually take me longer to make. But I feel like once I have a cohesive body of work that are just demos, um, uh, I actually don't always have the production first. Sometimes I might loop a sample that I really like and um, I might, you know, produce it myself and just rap over it. And um, Phonics will build the beat over that. Or the same thing with another producer will send a beat. And I say, okay, this is perfect for that record that was just the loop that I know I can't use. So let me get on it. So um, it takes time. And that album went through quite a few different variations. But um, once I got the final um, tracks from all of the producers and got the mixes back and it was cohesive, that's when I knew it was time to release it and we were ready to go. Um, I made that album over the time that my wife was pregnant with um, my daughter, you know, and that's why that album is like really reflective. It has political tinges to it um, because I'm just going through my life from being a father 
after so many years. You know, my children are 18 and 14, respectively, my sons. So this baby is like, oh, wow, you know, um, this is like a, a new life to me. She's like the only child because, you know, my oldest son is on his way to college. He's working. My middle son is kind of doing his own thing. And then we have this little baby. So, you know, a lot of people laugh like, why did you guys do that? But, <laughs> uh, you know, things happen. But again, that was that album was created during that time. So I would say over um, a nine month period and some of it was maybe done just a little bit earlier, but not too earlier. You know what I mean? Too much earlier. But that's with the inspiration. And it culminated on her birth. So I knew that I wanted to get that done because I wanted a, um, a, a time stamp for myself and for other people to see, you know, this cohesive work that I was able to do during this time. And that's why it's like a continuous um, narrative of thought. Um, any other time that I'm just, you know, collecting music and putting music out, I usually get it from Phonics, get the final um, word from Phonics because... Phonics is, a, um, in my right, like a, a prodigy, uh, a musical genius. And he just knows sequencing, um, mixing, mastering, and um, the music so much that he knows when it's right. And I trust him that much that I listen to him. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that he knows when it's right, because I just picked up that um, the unreleased project that he released. And I'm listening to all the original versions of the songs. And I'm just like, like... Okay, I can understand why he's changed it, but this version is dope anyway. But he he sounds like a he sounds like he's a you know typical producer, very very uh, picky about his music, in particular. Yes, he is. So that is something that happens uh, um, often. <laughs> you know, um... <laughs> I, I know I know the feeling, man. I know you know when you fall in love with a song, <laughs> and then the producer's like, nope, like I've got a song right now. It's it's been remixed three times. Right, right. So that happens that happens often with him, but again, I trust his ear um and his judgment and he's never been wrong. So um I'm gonna go with his track record over mine. You know, he has his finger on the pulse of our listeners well, you know what I mean? He fits the demographic of our listeners more based on his age compared to mine. So I trust him. Um I, I try to reinvent myself working with people that are younger than me, um, most of the time because I feel like I need fresh eyes and fresh ears on my art form so that I can maintain relevancy through um, generations to come. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to make mature music, but I'm making um, music for intellectual youth. That's what I'm making music for. Nice. How did you and Phonics meet? And how did you realize that, okay, this chemistry is official and I want to keep on working with this guy? Um, it was, uh, like around 4th of July, uh, 2013, Phonics reached out to me, um, via email and, um, I was with my family and stuff. So I briefly read it. And, um, once I got back home on the, I believe on the 4th of July or the 3rd or sometime around that point, you know, it could have been the end of June, but it was sometime in that week stretch. Cause I was home. I listened to the link that he sent me, which was, a um, album on Bandcamp of all of these remixes he did of classic golden era hip-hop and um I was uh, Im so impressed because I was listening to some of the same albums that he made these remixes from so I said to myself it's like this guy is reading my mind oh shit so I hit him back and I said listen 
let's just get on the call. Let's talk. I wanted to feel him out. I wanted to know, you know, where he's from, how old he was and different things like that. And he told me he was listening to my debut, Beautiful Loser, and was really, you know, impressed and wanted to work. And um, I said, okay, send me some music. So he sent me the instrumentals, which would become Return to the Golden Era. And I immediately was like, okay, this is perfect because... This is the type of music that I would like to make. This is something that I want to revisit. I thought it was a fresh perspective. And I said, let's go just make a concept album out of this. And that's what happened. We made Return to the Golden Era. I recorded that album in possibly two and a half weeks. Excuse me. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold up, hold that thought. Say that again. Yeah, I recorded that album in like two and a half weeks. Like, I, don't know, I don't know how you guys do this, you know. Like, I was talking to Dar Adams a couple of weeks ago. He told me Gangstar's first album was done in two weeks. Now you're telling me you did this album in two weeks. And here I am, me and Imperial's last album took two years. Like, I, I, I don't know how you lot do it, man. Uh, well, I'll put it to you like this. I had a lot of time alone at that time. Um, I was working, but I was working a job that... I had every other day off because I would do like long shifts. So every other day I was just off. Kids was in school. Nobody was home. So, you know, I would get up, you know, um, in the morning after the bus stop run, after breakfast and everything, I'm at home for hours. So I would warm up the computer, go in the booth, get on the mic and record the Phonics beats. Um, I recorded Above Water really late at night. Um, and some of the songs like Correct Techniques, really really late at night um my wife would be in the room on her phone you know because my my setup was in the bedroom we have a walk-in closet that i recorded in and she would be quiet you know put on headphones or something and i'll be recording and um i let her hear the demo she's like thumbs up that's it so i every every day i would just send him the tracks back and he was like oh wow you know you're fast and i was just like you know the music is making me fast you know Midas Touch was actually the last record we recorded off that, and it became the first song. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I remember that album vividly. Street Saga was the very first song that I recorded for that album, you know. Yeah, so um, it's just, it happened very quick because the inspiration was there, and he, he inspired me so much, and I felt like the concept of it was refreshing. And I, I wanted to take it back there because, again, that was the music that I was listening to. He presented it to me with remixes of like Mob Deep, Shook Ones, and, um, you know, Biggie's The What, you know, and things like that. You know what I mean? Biggie's Everyday Struggle. I was listening to those albums. So it was like such a coincidence that I wanted to make a concept that harkened back to that era. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm, I'm a bit nosy, man. Um, I noticed that there's a song on the album that's not available on the Bandcamp anymore. And I think it's the uh, the Rule of the Gun, but the original version. Okay, okay, I got you, I got you. Yeah, um, I was, because I remember I had an issue with my computer and I had to re-download the albums. I'm like, where's this, where's the original version of Rule of the Gun gone? Like, what, what, what's happened to it? Is it sample issues? Is it phonics on, an, on another hype saying, you know what, I don't like this version anymore, so I'm taking it down. Like, what, what's happened with that song? Well, it, it was the um, the anniversary issue and the fact that we had to change something to allow us to um, alert people that 
a new version was available. Right. The album is still everywhere on streaming, but Bandcamp is a little bit funny in the fact that, you know, no one would get a notification if you just add vinyl. So we had to make the um, album fit the anniversary version. But I'll let them know. Maybe we could get that back up there. Maybe it was just a small oversight um, on it. But I know that we had to change it to just make that, um, you know, foray when we did the repressing because we started pressing our own vinyl um at it's nice outside that was our first vinyl that we financed ourselves and began manufacturing ourselves shouts out to anti-lily return of the gold sorry return to the golden era was the first time i heard deflo have, have i pronounced it correctly yes correct correct where is he and how is he doing like he seems to have just gone quiet Nah, he's he's good. He's good. I believe he's he's very dope. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's in Houston. Um, I gotta hit him up. Actually, it's his birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Deflo! Yeah, happy birthday, Deflo! It's actually his birthday. Um, he stepped away from the game because he just didn't like what was going on. Um, you know, he had uh, uh I guess you could say I don't want to speak for him, but a certain expectation for hip hop, but. He's a straight-up guy. Um, he's a um, no-bullshit type of person. And you know from being an artist, it's a lot of bullshit <laughs> with hip-hop, unfortunately. And, um, you know, at our age, everyone doesn't have the patience to deal with that BS. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, he felt like he contributed enough and he got to do so many things. And he was good with it, you know. And I couldn't say you know nah man you can't stop you know what i'm saying or you can't do this i had to you know honor his decision but he's doing he's actually doing really great for himself and um i was just we just texting back and forth the other day he's, he's doing really well you know and um we we still have music out there together that's still like relevant so sometimes it's like why add more onto something that is already you know hit, in, in our opinion, we made history from where we come from to have had music um, disseminated around the entire world and people know who we are without people knowing who we are. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. Yep, yep, yep. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. But hail up Deflo when you, when, you, when you speak to him and wish him happy birthday from Breaking Atoms. For sure, for sure. Definitely will. So some of the greatest hip-hop that I've personally listened to in my life, I think, come from duos, right? I think the bond between an MC... And a DJ slash producer is sacred to me. Who are some of the, the duos that you and Phonics look up to, and and for and you know for what reasons? You don't need to go through the whole list. Maybe just two or three. Who are the, who are the duos that you look to and you think we want to be like that? First and foremost, Gangstar, um, and second, Pete Rock and CL Smooth. Same as me. It's the same as me. Yeah, those those are the two duos who we look to um, and say, you know, this is the blueprint. This is the model. Um, and we want to um, keep our catalog clean, if you will, with just making music that people enjoy, that people embrace and hold in a high regard. And that's why um, I might do features, I might have singles, but I'm not putting it, I don't like to put our albums at a feverish pace because I don't want to um, taint our legacy or tarnish our legacy with any bullshit. So I remember jumping on my Netflix, and I saw a documentary called The Underdogs, um, and you're heavily, heavily featured in it. Um, first of all, kudos and congratulations. As an independent artist, to be featured on a documentary on Netflix is big, and I hope you don't overlook that in terms of your career because it's huge. 
How did that documentary come about? Like, what was the filming process like? Uh, well, thank you, first and foremost. Um, the filming process was, uh, the story was um, our friend and director, my brother, Tio Frank, had visited Alaska, and he was out there filming, and he ran into our uh, manager and friend and brother, Mason Strail, who just happened to be in Alaska, which is his hometown. Happened to be there when Tio was there, and um, they linked up and met, began talking about music. Tio heard our music and immediately wanted to meet us. Mason arranged it, um, and we were to meet in New York City and began filming a mini documentary about our forthcoming album at that time, which was Knowledge Itself. Um, once we saw the, uh, the original length of what he had, um, it was maybe, you know, 20 minutes or so. We knew that we needed to film more because this was growing into something different. And um, we invited Teal to come to Virginia um, to get more into the recording process. Um, we shot a video for Tiff in New York. Um, and we just, he, we, he got us some shows in Europe. He was our first, like, booking agent. <laughs> he got us some shows so that we could come to Europe and um, compensate some of the cost. And we rented this crazy flat in Paris and um, traveled around to Paris, um, Annecy, France, and then Grenoble, which is Teal's hometown. Um, and we met with so much hospitality and graciousness. It was incredible. And um, throughout those experiences was really the core of most of the um, filming in the documentary. And subsequently, we had more trips to Europe, which were added in. Um, because we continue filming over the course of about three years. So, um, you know, really a laborious process, but um, it was one that I enjoyed thoroughly because I was able to do it with my friends and family. And um, Teal is like a, a, a filmmaking prodigy. Um, you know, for those that don't know, uh, Mason and Teal were about 17 and 18, respectively, when they began working with us. Oh, so they're young, young. That's good. Dope. So they got that youthful, youthful energy, and it it goes back to what you said about working with younger people with um, fresh eyes and ears. Absolutely. Yes, but they are extremely talented, and um, it shows through what we were able to do. And um, we we did the film festivals with underdogs first, and uh, we began looking for a, a media company to shop um, the film. And Teal found Trace TV um, in France, and uh, Betty. The uh, CEO, uh, you know, the director over there, really beautiful person, um, believed in us so much that she began pushing and she pushed us to Netflix and it happened. They believed in it. So um, I like to thank Trace, Teo, all of the film festivals that we were in, like the downtown L.A. Film Festival, the hip hop um, Film Festival of New York City, you know, Liftoff Films, all of these festivals that really embraced us, they made it happen. They made it so a company like Trace would want to embrace our project and push us out to um, Netflix as well as Red Bull um, Media. So um, it's been a blessing to, to have been a part of that experience. I, I wrote a song a few years ago called The Year of the Underdog because to me, being an underdog isn't always a bad thing. Um, I find... If I look throughout my life, I'm a big wrestling fan. I don't know if you know this, but I was never into Hulk Hogan. 
I was never into the Ultimate Warrior or those big names that we know growing up. I was more into the Ricky Steamboats, the the um the Bret Hart's, um, Rick Rude, those those guys who weren't necessarily the superstars of the time, but they were just really good at what they do. Those are the people I gravitate to. As a fellow underdog, what are the three traits you feel an underdog needs to have in order to win and be consistent in what they're doing? Um, I think that an underdog always needs to have a chip on their shoulder. Um, they also need to have confidence. The confidence that it takes to understand that it's a marathon and not a race. Um, and lastly, patience. Because it's a marathon and not a race. And I think that if you combine those three things together, you have the perfect recipe for people that can always come from behind and surprise the world with the win. Well said. I'm going to wrap this up now because you've given me so much of your time and I appreciate it. Could you let the Breaking Atoms listeners know what you've got coming up next, whether it's more albums, documentaries? What can we expect from you in in the the months and years to come? Um, Right now, um, I have uh, Project Antithesis uh, Volume 1, Part 3 out on all streaming platforms. Um, That's with uh, a piano um, project called Project Antithesis and the producer Blunt One from Budapest, Hungary. Um, also Solar Power, which is my last album that's out on Dope Sleep Records everywhere right now. Um, and I'm working on new music features with different people. Just worked with a UK MC and producer, um, Dr. Lecter in Longshot um, on a record called Soft MCs. I'm working with... Um, DJ Zid, I'm working with Napoleon the Legend, um, I'm working with Count Fifth and Smooth, Calhoun, um, and I'm beginning to work on the next A1 and Phonics project. Uh, No ETA on that, we're just in the beginning of working on that, but that's what I'm focused on, and I'm also focused on 2023, which would be the 10th anniversary of Return to the Golden Era and Phonics and I meeting and setting things up. So um, looking forward to touring once, um, you know, this COVID outbreak and everything subsides and really celebrating um, what we've been able to do um, since 2013 with all of our listeners and friends worldwide. And when you do come to London for the uh, anniversary tour, make sure you stop by my crib. We'll have dinner. Yo, absolutely. I actually have a UK agent now. So uh, it's on and popping. I will be coming to the UK for all of the listeners that have been clamoring for that. That's going to happen once everything subsides. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that, you know, you had to go through a proper agency now due to Brexit and due to, um, you know, everyone needing a visa and the UK, you know, borders being quote unquote closed. So, you know, it's easier to do that through an agency than to do it myself. So I'm happy I'm working with a proper agency for when this comes down. I will be in the UK. Definitely. Definitely. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you. Before you go, where can people find you on the socials? And if they want to reach out, ask questions or, you know, collaborate, whatever. How can they get to you? Um, Always hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at A11988.com. That's A W O N. 1988.com, but at AWON1988. Um, they also can go to don'tsleeprecords.com, um, don'tsleeprecords.bandcamp.com, you know, a1.bandcamp.com. And um, 
A1 on Facebook. I'm I'm literally everywhere on all of the platforms. Reach out. You'll be surprised. I message back. I hit everybody back when I can. So um, I look forward to just connecting, man, and chopping it up with everybody. So don't be a stranger at A1 1988. Let's, let's chat. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us, bro. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, yeah, it was knowledgeable. It was refreshing. It's made me soul search. And um, it's, it's made me actually want to go create an A1 and Phonics playlist. That's what I'm going to be listening to for the rest of the day. So I appreciate you, bro. Thank you, man. Thank you. Shouts out to you. Uh, um, also, shouts out to my beautiful wife holding down my daughter um, while I'm out here uh, chatting with you. You know what I mean? We enjoy yeah, we enjoying some beautiful weather. So shouts out to Tiff the Gift and um, shouts out to all of the people out there. Power to the people, man. Black Lives Matter. Let's make some things work. You know what I mean? Teamwork make the dream work. So everyone be well, no doubt. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And once again, many thanks to A1 for taking time out of his day to share his thoughts with us. You can share your thoughts with us too. We are on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Break the Atoms. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can hit me at I Am Kinetic, and that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Make sure you subscribe to the Breaking Atoms podcast on Apple, Google Podcasts, and Spotify so you can get all the episodes automatically. Make sure you stay washing your hands and filming the police at all times because they are moving mud. Thanks for listening.